I'm so glad it's not going to look like this forever. Praise God for His kingdom is coming. Thank you, team. You know, you could not possibly watch television for any length of time without being bombarded by these commercials that uh, entice us to try to get our genetic makeup tested. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Well, tracing one's genealogy has now has been a transforming concept of identity. One of those commercials shows a man who says that all of his life thought he was German and discovered he was Scotchman. Well, I was tempted one time. I thought I might try it. And just for a brief period of time, I thought about it. But then I feared that they might discover that I'm Swede. <laughs> now, I'll have to be very sunburned Swede. <laughs> so I gave the idea up. The skeptic in me thought that this whole thing is really a multi-billion dollar hoax. And I was confirmed right <laughs> when one of my colleagues shared this report. It's only a minute. Let me show it to you on the screen. Millions of people buy DNA test kits, curious to learn what their genes might reveal about their ancestry. But how accurate are those kits? Well, we tested some of them using identical triplets and quadruplets. Lisa Guerrero has the results. This is me. The commercials run day and night. Companies offering to unlock the secrets to your ancestry. How accurate are they? What would happen if, for example, triplets took the tests. All they have to do is spit in a cup and ship off the samples. Their ancestry should be absolutely identical. The test from 23andMe showed some surprising differences. You're 11% French and German. But Erica, you're 22.3% French and German. And how is it possible that Mandy showed 6% Scandinavian ancestry, but her identical sisters showed none? That's weird. I mean, I don't like it. It's the one exact no result at all. same DNA that they tested. Is that a little disappointing for Very. you? Very. What is your takeaway from these tests? We're not to a place yet where you can just spit in a cup and have every single answer that you're looking for. I think that that's what people need to be aware of. Well, it's a hoax anyway. That's what, I, that's what they're saying, basically. <laughs> An article recently published in the Oxford University Press reads in our quoted uh, in part, say they, talking about these companies that are making a fortune doing all this stuff, he said they often use acts of deliberate manipulation as well as actual distortion of the historic reality and they are supposed, that they are supposed to document, end of quote. But there are also some who blame their genes for their immorality. Well, I just couldn't help my immoral behavior. It's in my genes. It's just the way I am. That's, that's the excuse. I'm, that's just the way I was born. The truth of the matter is, the Bible tells us there are some inherited genes that every human being on the face of the earth have inherited and are born with. And the Bible tells us that we all have inherited and born with Adam's defective genes of rebellion against God. That one you can take to the bank. On many university campuses today, it is fashionable. 
among the progressive left, the secular, militant secular humanists, uh, to say that man is really born very good. He's only got corrupted by capitalism. Right. But the Scripture makes it very clear that while we are born in sin, and while we've inheritors, are inheritors of Adam's sin and rebellion, and his genes of rebellion, uh, while by nature we are born at in, in enmity with God, the cross of Jesus Christ can transform us into the very image of Christ Himself. Anyone who says, I cannot help it, I cannot help my immoral behavior because uh, that's just the way I was born, that person has never experienced the transforming power of the cross of Christ, and they don't want to. That person refuses to accept the indescribable power of the Holy Spirit that works, can work in us, that power that can turn us from sinners into saints, that power that can change us from rebellion against God to being in a relationship with God. Now, beloved, listen to me. The root of the tree of our lives is the inherited sin. We know that. That's the root of it. <laughs> it's the sin nature. But the Holy Spirit can produce His fruit in us, defying our root and the root of sin nature. The root of the tree of our lives is born of a seed of self-centeredness. But the power of God's Holy Spirit can defy those inherited genes and produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, the best example of this that I have tested through the years is an illustration of one of the most extensive research and a study probably in history. This uh, research, now my numbers varies, and if you look up and you go and do, do your own research, you're going to find that those numbers might not be exact, but the research itself is very accurate. And these researchers followed two family lines from generation to generation to generation. One family inherited sin, just like every family inherited sin. Uh, like every family on the face of the earth inherited sin. Yet they chose to live in sin. The other family inherited the sin, just like every other family on the face of the earth. But that second family came under the transforming power of God the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. The first family began by a man by the name of Max Jux. Jux rejected the gospel out of hand. Uh, he refused to take his children to Sunday school even when they asked to go. Jux had, and here are the numbers again, they'll just give or take, maybe 10 or 20, uh, had about 1,026 descendants. 300 of them were sent to prison on the average of 13 years, sentence. 190 of his descendants were prostitutes. 680 of them admitted alcoholics. That family, during the time of the research, had cost the state 
$420,000. They made no contribution to society. By contrast, the researchers studied the descendants of another man. He lived during the same time and actually not very far from the Jacks. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He loved the Lord. He saw to it that his children were brought up to know and love the Lord. Uh, he himself served the Lord <laughs> the best of his ability. Jonathan Edwards had 229 descendants. 430 of them became ministers of the gospel. 86 of them were university professors. 13 of them became university presidents. 75 of them authored good books. Seven were elected to the U.S. Congress. And one of them was vice president of the United States by the name of Aaron Burr. Jonathan Edwards' family did not cost the state one cent, but they made an immeasurable contribution to society. And beloved, when you read this and when you see this, and yet there are some foolish, I mean foolish, progressive professors or some educational uh, leaders and the cultural elite who refuse to believe that the root problem of mankind is the problem of the heart. They blatantly outlaw the prayers in the name of Jesus in public places. They, in the schools, they outlawed prayer. In the schools, they made the Bible to be a forbidden document. They have replaced our national heroes with those who are, uh, feel uh, victimized. They militantly fight against any admission that sin is our root problem. They fail to acknowledge that the devastation that our nation is facing, that the violence that we're facing in the land has its root in the biblical sin. Why? Ah, because if they acknowledge <laughs> that the truth that our root problem is in the biblical sin, then they will have to acknowledge and have to accept the antidote to sin, the only antidote of sin, namely the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 12 to 21, the Apostle Paul, after showing us that salvation is by grace alone, and that is not the cheap grace that is preached in many a pulpit today. This is the grace of God that transforms lives. As you've heard me quote Spurgeon many times, the grace that does not change a life is not the grace of Jesus Christ. And that salvation comes with the sixfold guarantees that we saw in the very last message. Here he explained the origin of sin and the only solution to sin. Here he goes again. The Apostle Paul is anticipating the questions of the, right, of, of the readers. And the question here is this. Why is it that so many owe so much only to one person? Great question. And so here he begins by providing an analysis, a contrast, if you like, between Adam and Jesus. The two are not equal, I'm going to show you in a minute. But a contrast between the acts of those two men. Please follow with me. 
if you haven't already turned to Romans 5, beginning at verse 12 all the way to 21, please do so. I actually have simplified and boiled down this whole passage into three sentences. Adam fell, Christ arose, and the believer wins. Have you got that? I mean, that's a very simple. Come on, let's say it together. Adam, Christ. God bless you. At verses 12 to 14, we see Adam fell and took all of humanity down with him. Verses 15 to 19, Jesus arose and he raised the believers up with him from death. Thirdly, verses 20 to 21, the believers are the winners. Let's look at these very quickly. When Adam decided to activate his rebellious genes, he had to face the consequences of his actions. More importantly, he passed these de defective genes to every one of us, <laughs> to all of humanity. I read not long ago about a very prominent scientist who is a professor at a very well-known scientific university. And he was addressing a group of doctoral candidates. Here's what he said. With all of our scientific progress, the mortality rates remain at 100%. <laughs> Death comes to all of us. Death comes to the rich and the poor. Death comes to the young and the old. Death comes to the blacks and the whites. Death does not discriminate. In fact, in the Middle East, we have a saying, it goes something like this. The black camel of death kneels once at each door, and each mortal must mount to return no more. The question that has plagued humanity ever since the beginning of time is why does death reign supreme? Why must everyone die? How can death be so uh, indisputable victor over mankind? People ask that question for hundreds of thousands of years. And here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 and 14, Paul answered the question in a logical sequence. Follow it with me, please. He said, first, it was Adam's sin against God that activated the power of sin. That activation of the power of sin brought Adam and all of his descendants physical death. Please don't misunderstand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He is not saying that sin and rebellion against God originated with Adam. That's not what he's saying. In fact, sin originated with Satan when he rebelled against God and tried to conduct a coup d'etat in heaven, and he got thrown out of heaven. Adam had a choice. Should I obey Satan or should I obey God? Beloved, listen to me. <laughs> you, you, you don't, all you need to do is breathe and realize that you and I are facing that same question every single day, many times a day. Should I obey the Word of God and what I know God's Word has said, or should I go with the temptation of Satan? We have faced this every time, and in most times, they're very clear. Occasionally, they're ambiguous. Either way, we have a choice. The Bible says that even for the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
those who have received a new nature in Christ, inside of us, those two natures are fighting with each other, the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. I know you heard me say this before, that inside of us, the two dogs are fighting. The dog you feed is going to defeat the weak dog, okay? Which one do you feed on a daily basis, the flesh or the spirit? Just in case, just in case anyone here, I know I heard this through the, uh, my days of working with youth, but, which is back in the days of Noah. But, <laughs> but in case you, 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 one person here saying, man, this miserable Adam, you know, he got us into trouble. If I were there, I wouldn't have fallen for this. Right. <laughs> you and I would have exactly been where Adam was. In fact, there are so many experiments through the years that in, in you and my training in sociology, experiments, and it has nothing to do even with the Christian faith, but these experiments have done with the old and the young, and so, social anthropologists and so, sociologists tried this test again and again and again, where there's a room filled with boxes, and a person is put in that room, and it says, the sign says, open any of these boxes except for this one. Every time, without, without, without the change, every time, with monotony, <laughs> They go for the box that says do not open. That's just the human nature. You see, we by nature want to do what we're told not to do. Listen to me. <laughs> Somebody might say, wait a minute, Michael, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why does the Bible hold Adam responsible? Why does Adam get all of the flack? Didn't Eve sin first? Why, why does Adam... <laughs> Get the full blame and not Eve. Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to answer the question. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I can tell you this, and uh, 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 don't shoot me, but this happened really. 1989, I was in a meeting with a large number of very militant feminists. I'm telling you, I stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> but, but their debate was, we need to get the Bible translators, we need to get the theologians to stop referring to God in the masculine pronoun. He, Father, and all of, I mean, what's going on was going on, and I didn't want to fight. I know that's not a, that's not a winning fight. I mean, man, I'm, I'm, I might look stupid, but I'm not that stupid. I kept my mouth shut. But when I was young, I always had the sense of ludicrous in me. Now that I'm a little older, hopefully a little wiser. And um, I said, uh, can I ask a question? And they groaned. <laughs> Whenever I get up to say something in those meetings, I used to be booed before I say anything. <laughs> I said, can we also refer to Satan as she? <laughs> Man. I was nearly stoned to death. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, you need to understand. When Eve sinned, and then she invited Adam to join her, she actually thought that she was doing Adam a favor. I understand that. You see, 
when Satan told her that eating of that fruit, uh, this forbidden fruit, is going to make her great, will be just like God, she did not want her husband to miss out on the blessing. Uh, Eve is the first person who lived the lyrics of the song, Stand by your man. (laughs) You see, Eve wanted her husband to get ahead. Eve wanted her husband to succeed in life. Eve wanted her husband to climb the corporate ladder. Eve wanted her husband to receive promotion. And you say, that's just natural. (laughs) But it was Adam's responsibility to have said, no. Are you with me? It was Adam's responsibility to take the spiritual leadership in the home. It was Adam's responsibility to bring his wife to repentance and confession. It was Adam's responsibility to say to his wife, Evie, sugar plum, do you remember what God said? (laughs) Evie, buttercup, let's go to God and ask for forgiveness. But instead, he fell for it. Head first. See, that's why the Bible talks about the sin of Adam. And from that time on, all the sins that our children inherit, inherit from the father. So, mom, every time you spank your little boy, you're spanking daddy out of him. (laughs) 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 To make things worse, to make things worse, instead of acknowledging what he did, and asked God to forgive him. He blamed God. <laughs> he said, God, it's really your fault. You gave me this woman. Huh. I'm going to move on. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to go home today and have lunch. <laughs> I want to tell you what the Scripture says. <laughs> and Paul is telling us here in verses 12 to 14, of Romans chapter 5, that the real poison that that fruit had was death, not only for Adam, but for all of his descendants, for you and me. Even babies die, not because they have committed any sin, but because they're still born in sin, and therefore sin brings death. And because they are a recipient of sin nature. Don't miss this very important point Paul is making here. Please don't miss it. A person does not become a sinner by committing sin. But he rather, a person commits a sin because by nature he's a sinner. Did you get that? A person does not become a sinner by committing a sin. But rather, a person commits a sin because he is a sinner by nature. A person does not become a liar when he lies, but a person lies because their heart is already deceitful. A person does not become a thief when he steals, but he steals because he's greedy. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Sin leads to death. Death leads to separation from God. And Adam experienced that separation immediately when he was thrown out of the garden as a result 
of disobedience. You know, I've heard people through the years who say, it's not fair. It's not fair. Adam sinned, and we all kind of inherit his mistake. <laughs> Beloved, neither is it fair for the sinless, perfect, holy Son of God to carry the sin and pay, pay the wages of the sin of everyone who believes in him. Adam fell. Christ arose. Verses 15 to 19. Because Adam chose to activate his rebellious genes, all humanity is born with these defective genes. You want to find out your origin? The Bible tells you what they are. <laughs> the defective genes. And therefore, all will experience physical death. But when Christ arose from the grave, He made it possible for all who believe in Him to rise with Him, never to die eternally. The believers will never die. Physically, they'll die. But eternally, they will reign and rule supreme with Christ. Beloved, when Adam stretched out his hands and took the forbidden fruit, he caused us all to die. But when the perfect sinless Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross, he made it possible for everyone who believes in him to rise with him. Adam selfishly polluted humanity and pulled us all down. But Jesus' selflessness made it possible for those who believe in him to be cleansed from the pollution of sin. Adam's act of disobedience brought the curse of sin upon all of humanity. But Jesus' obedience to the Father made it possible for all who believe in Him uh, to be freed from the burden of sin and from the curse of sin. Adam went where he should not have gone. He went where he's not supposed to go, and he led all of humanity down the road to lostness. But Jesus' obedience to the Father it took him where he was led by the Father, and he there offering all of humanity the opportunity to walk down the highway of salvation. Adam fell in Satan's deception. Instead of becoming like God, he was separated from God. But Jesus, when he defeated Satan, hell, and the grave, he made it possible for the believers to be reconciled with his Father. Adam's one big act brought us damnation, but Christ's one big act on the cross brought us salvation. Adam's selfish assertion brought a curse and death, brokenness, and endless graves and endless grief, but Christ's sacrifice brought grace, power, and joy to all who call upon His name. Adam's insistence upon having his own way brought humanity low into the state of utter helplessness and set us, many of us, uh, into an eternal grow, grave. But Christ's willingness to go with the Father's way made it possible for you and you and you and me to live beyond the grave into the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's something you cannot miss. Paul is not saying, listen carefully, this is important, because the cults like the Mormons and the others teach this. 
He's not saying that Adam and Jesus are perfect parallel. No, 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 no. The Mormons teach that and many other cults. That's a heresy. They're not perfect parallel. Paul is merely contrasting the two acts. One destructive and the other restorative. Adam brought death once. Jesus brought life forever. Adam's disobedience brought guilt once. Christ's death brings forgiveness for his believers for all of eternity. Adam's disobedience grasped equality with God, but Jesus' obedience caused him to lay aside for a, for, a, for a season his own equality with God, which he had before all foundation of the earth. Adam fell. Jesus rose. The believer wins. When Adam fell, he brought about one-dimensional death. One-dimensional death. But the gift of grace provides us with multidimensional resurrection from the death. Death is measurable. Grace is immeasurable. Death is great, but eternal life is far greater. Hear me right, please. Here's the most fantastic news of all. It is the most fantastic news of all. Don't miss it if you've never accepted the good news. Today you can do that. Here's the most fantastic news of all. The gift of grace did not merely restore the believers to the state of Adam's his before, original state before he fell. No, 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 no. The gift of grace did not only reverse the curse of death, but forgiveness and cleansing us from sin. Indeed, the gift of grace provides a way for the redeemed of the Lord to put on the full righteousness and the glory of God. We, the believers in Jesus, we are the recipients of His grace, the gift of salvation, eternal life. We have the very very life of God in us, the very life of God in us. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever. This is when you get into trouble. This is what I get into trouble when I forget this. When you get down and discouraged, when you're grieving deeply, when you're hurt so badly, remember you have the life of God in you. Adam, one selfish act, deliberate as it was, is now, now, now overwhelmed by God's grace. Death by nature is static and empty, but life in Christ is active. It is full, it's alive, and it's for eternity. Verses 20 and 21, look at them with me, please. Paul is saying that even though the law of Moses was given, but when it was given and the reason for it, it was not to give us life. That was not the purpose of why God gave the law to Moses. It is not to give us life. It can never give us life. The law was given as a temporary custodian. (laughs) Why? For the purpose of sending people running into the grace of God. The law is like a dentist's mirror. It shows the dentist where the cavities are. It can never fill the cavity. The law of God reveals the problem. 
but it does not provide the solution to the problem. The law of God is like a flashlight. It will take you to the box where the fuses are, but it can never restore electricity. The law of God was like a builder's plumb line. It can help the builder to see whether he is going straight or crooked, <laughs> but it does not help that, it show him the balance, but it does not fix the problem. The law cannot take away the curse of sin. It merely makes it visible. It merely makes us aware of the curse of sin. The law cannot take away our guilt and the guilt of sin. It only increases the guilt of sin. Hear me right, this is important. Only the grace of Jesus can defeat sin. Only the grace of Jesus can overwhelm sin. Only the grace of Jesus can subjugate sin. Only the grace of Jesus can permanently cover sin from the sight of God. That's why, that's why. See, that's why no one, I don't care how many preachers say otherwise, don't believe them. They're lying. Only, only those who are recipient of the grace of Jesus are going to make it to heaven. Hello? Not all religions are equal. Not all cultures and all the stuff that they're preaching, that we're all redeemed on the cross. It doesn't matter whether you're Hindu or a Buddhist or, a, or an atheist. You're redeemed on the cross, that the curse of the cross took the curse of sin for all people. Absolutely not. Only for the recipients of the grace of God, they're going to make it to heaven. And if you do not have it, you can receive it today. Whether you're watching around the world or you're here in this place, Verse 20 says, where sin increases, grace also abounds even more. Listen to me. There are some false preachers going around saying that means the more I sin, the more I experience the grace of God. The more I sin, the more I experience. So sin boldly. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. What does that mean? Where sin increases, grace also abounds. It means that when Adam fell, Jesus rose, and the believer wins. Where sin is found, grace overwhelms it. Where sin is acknowledged and confessed and repented of, grace covers it completely. Ah, oh, but if sin is rationalized and explained away and sort of given all sorts of explanations and why and who and what for, that sin will fester like a cancer in the body. Hear me right, hear me right. I'm getting ready toward the end. When you're tempted to think, that your sins are too great. Remember that the grace of God is greater than your sin. When you are tempted to think that your guilt is too powerful, remember the grace of God is far more powerful than your guilt. When you are tempted to think that your past sins are too dark, remember the grace of God is brighter and will dissipate the darkness of your past. When you are tempted to think that Satan is too powerful and you cannot resist. Remember that God is far more powerful than Satan ever hoped to be. When you are tempted to doubt your salvation, remember it is well with your soul because Jesus said so. Amen. Will you stand up and pray? In a moment, we're going to sing amazing grace, but in reality, grace is beyond amazing. Grace is overwhelming. 
Grace is overwhelming. Grace is beyond description. And if you're a person here who has taken the grace of God for granted, I pray and invite you to come and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I bow in gratitude for your grace. I won't presume on your grace. If you have never received that grace of God, you're not here by accident. You're here to hear and respond to God's Word, the Lord Jesus. I come to you in repentance of my sins. Forgive me, and you'll receive the grace of God. For all of us who have known the grace of God and have become a whole hum, oh, grace will cover it. I pray to God that He will sharpen our sensitivities, that we would hate sin as much as we love grace. Father, I'm so grateful and will always be to the day either you come back or I see you face to face. Where would I be without your grace? I'm so grateful that every time I confess and every time I repent, your restorative power works in me. And Lord, I know I speak for thousands of your children in gratitude and thanksgiving. And so we bless you and praise you. We adore you and worship you. And Father, I pray that as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, that we may take the exhortation of the Apostle Paul into the Corinthians that we would not take this table for granted. That we do not come in an unworthy manner with unconfessed sins, but that we be cleansed before you. And so as we come and participate in the symbols of your body and blood, will be remembered that it was that body that was torn on the cross that redeemed us, that carried our sin, that carried the curse, and that we've been set free from sin. Father, remind us also that our time is short, that sooner or later we'll be gathered around the table in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, I pray that you would convict every person at the sound of my voice. What will you say when you go for that audience of one with you? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen us through the participation in your table, that we go out and be witnesses, that we cease to sit on salvation seats for so long, but we begin to tell of the power of Christ that forgave us. Father, I pray this in the matchless, powerful name, a name that's above every name, a name for whom all knees one day will bow. Every tongue, whether they do it not now or not, will confess on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.
And amen. And amen. Remain standing.